This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 211 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Joining us this week is Jack Cable. He's a security researcher and student at Stanford University, currently a researcher with the Stanford Internet Observatory and the Stanford Empirical Security Research Group. Jack built a reputation for himself in hacker circles as a talented and prolific bug bounty hunter and is ranked within the top 100 hackers of all time on HackerOne. He started his cybersecurity pursuits as a teenager and joined the Defense Digital Service right out of high school, where he helped run the Hack the Pentagon bug bounty portfolio, advised on the next iteration of the DoD Vulnerability Disclosure Program, and built innovative cybersecurity assessment tools. Stay with us. So I got into um, technology through computer science, through programming pretty early on. When I was in middle school, this was seventh grade or so, I began taking Stanford's introductory programming course called CS106A. They had the lectures on YouTube, and my brother, who's four years older, had kind of done the same thing. He'd inspired me to go and kind of teach myself coding. Um, So that was kind of the initial spark that really got me to be interested in uh, technology, uh, just being able to see that kind of I could really tell a computer what to do and really enjoyed kind of like making games, other things that I could then show to my friends, uh, kind of stuff that I'd built. Um, so I, I programmed for a few years and still do to today, um, but got into security then somewhat accidentally when I was in high school. This was when I was a sophomore in high school. I was looking at the API of a cryptocurrency website, uh, was working to develop an integration with it, and noticed that there was a way for me to send a negative amount of money to other people on the site. So instead of sending money to them, it would actually steal money from their account. So I didn't know much about <laughs> security at the time, but I knew that was pretty bad. Um, And fortunately, they had a bug bounty program where they would pay people who discovered vulnerabilities in their systems. So I was able to tell them about it and actually get paid for it, which was pretty cool because I did realize this was something that existed um, even more that I could make money from it. So that was kind of what sparked my interest in security. And from there, I started just teaching myself more, getting into other bug bounty programs and going from there. And and you've had uh, quite a lot of success in bug bounty programs. I mean, you you are a bug bounty hunter of some note. Yep, I've done a fair amount of it. So definitely do less so today, just um, kind of focusing on school and other work. But I yeah did a did a lot of bug bounties. I think ended up within say the top hundred hackers on the Hacker One bug bounty platform, and was able to participate in a lot of really awesome events. Uh, for instance, some of the live events that they host, as well as um, and this was one of the kind of areas that really got me more into this was some of the military's bug bounty events. Um, I participated in the first one called Hack the Pentagon, and then uh, several after that that. Uh, really kind of inspired me to keep going here. Um, what drew your attention to working for the Department of Defense? What what, uh, what attracts you to that side of things? 
Mm -hmm. So that was kind of a fun thing in that this was, so I was 16 at the time and got an email from um, HackerOne. I think the subject was, what if I told you that the Pentagon wanted you to hack it? And this was an invitation to the first Hack the Pentagon program. And this was really only a few months into kind of me getting involved in bug bounties in the first place. So this was pretty wild to me that um, here I was, a 16-year-old high schooler, being asked by the Pentagon to identify vulnerabilities in their systems. Um, but I was really fortunate to be able to participate in that first one. Um, didn't really, I found nothing of note, a few things that other people had already discovered, um, but kind of it inspired me to go a little further into some of the next ones that came up. Um, so there was Hack the Army, and then the, the one that um, I did pretty well in was called Hack the Air Force. And actually, before the Hack the Air Force event, I was invited by HackerOne to their offices in San Francisco. Uh, this is, I was maybe 17 and got to meet some senior uh, DOD leaders in cybersecurity, including people from the Defense Digital Service. And this really motivated me to do really well in the next challenge. So I ended up placing first in the Hack the Air Force challenge, found over 30 vulnerabilities, um, some pretty uh, critical ones included. So that was kind of, I think, it really opened my eyes to the fact that this is something that was fundamentally changing the way security is done. If even the Pentagon is now opening their doors to hackers, something where, I don't know, 10 years ago, even five years ago, or I guess it's been launched uh, for five years now, but a decade ago, someone in my same shoes would never have had the opportunity to be invited by the Pentagon to hack their systems, and now they're they're not only doing that; they're paying people to do that. And uh, ended, I ended up working for the Defense Digital Service after this, as a result of uh, kind of the work with the bug bounties. But um, I think, yeah, it became clear that kind of this is really changing the game of uh, cybersecurity. I got to ask you, you know, you're when when you're 16, you're 17 years old, and and you're doing this stuff. Had had at this point, had you seen the the movie War Games? I had not, and I haven't watched it. Um, I yeah, a little behind on my hacker movie knowledge, but I've I've heard okay. a lot about it. <laughs> you know, you're you were quite a youngster coming into this. Was there ever any sense, you know, to yourself, to your peers, the the folks you were participating in these competitions with, that um, you know that you were you were the young guy? So I definitely was, I think, at most of, say, these HackerOne events, um, or most certainly like when I was at the Pentagon. Um, I started working there when I was 18, the summer after high school. I was pretty universally the youngest person in the room. Um, I think le less notable at some of the HackerOne events just because they do skew younger, so I'd say mostly people in say their 20s, um, a lot of whom got into it similarly as I did. Uh, but certainly being in the Pentagon, uh, I think what was really remarkable was just the position that Defense Digital Service is in. And for those uh, who aren't familiar, it's essentially the Secretary of Defense's SWAT team of nerds. So about 50 people who work directly for the Secretary of Defense to solve kind of the biggest technology problems facing uh, the Department of Defense. And of course, cyber security is right up there. Um, so I got to be a part of that and really um, they excel at cutting through the bureaucracy. 
So for instance, me, an 18-year-old, I was able to help run the Hack the Marine Corps event um, that kind of did the similar thing with Hack the Air Force, but for the Marines. And then I actually briefed um, the results of this out to the Marine Corps leadership. So it was me in a t-shirt with a room of about 33 and four star Marine generals and um, just kind of, yeah, never expected that. Um, and they listened to what I had to say, which was the really surprising part. So I think that they're even leadership at DOD sees that kind of, we need to be taking a new approach to cybersecurity. Uh, what, what's currently existed and has been done for decades just isn't cutting it. I mean, I think that's a really good point that, you know, you're, you're among these, these, uh, high powered people and, you know, they're respecting you for your skills. They're not looking down on you because of your age. They recognize that you had something to bring to the table. Definitely. And I think that it was, yeah, a really fortunate opportunity to be there at Defense Digital Service, uh, where kind of they're given that level of authority. I think certainly kind of across government and industry, too, we do still have ways to go for that, where, yes, it's we need to acknowledge it's not about kind of your how long you've been doing this or your credentials or your education, but really yeah, the skills you bring to the table. Um, but, but I think it is optimistic that kind of, yeah, the state of play is starting to shift. Yeah. Well, you're at Stanford now uh, and you're a student there. Was there any consideration along the way that, you know, maybe maybe you don't need a degree? So, yeah, I've been asked this a lot. And I think, yeah, almost certainly I could I could go out right now. I could have gone out um, out of high school and start working on cybersecurity uh, for either government or for private company. Um, but I think that there's really a lot of value that I've gotten out of being at Stanford, both on the technical side as well as kind of the broader policy side. Um, so just to start with technical, I think that um, I, I'd say that most universities do lack on kind of um, cybersecurity education. So I looked into this a few years ago and only one out of the top 20 universities actually requires that students majoring in computer science take a security class. Um, so there's a, a lack of um, kind of instructing students, not just who might be future security professionals, but also if you're going to be a software developer, you need to have a baseline knowledge of security. So you know, you've, so you have a sense of like when things um, might start um, getting vulnerable and maybe you bring in the security team uh, to take a look. Um, but, but overall, it's definitely been really helpful to kind of get a fundamental technical understanding of, um, computer science, both on the theory side and in practice. Um, so I think I've gotten a lot of, out of that, um, but I'd say equally valuable has been kind of the non-technical policy side where Stanford has a lot of great people, um, thinking about uh, the policy side of cybersecurity. Um, I've worked with the Stanford Internet Observatory um, under um, Alex Stamos, the former chief security officer um, at Facebook for a few years now, and um, kind of looking at mitigating harms on the Internet that include security, but also is much broader, such as disinformation um, and other uh, types of harm that are affecting people every day. So um, being exposed to that, I think, has really shaped um, how I view a lot of this cybersecurity work and um, has certainly been really valuable. 
I want to go into uh, one of the things that you worked on. You found a glitch in a ransomware payment system and were able to, to help out some folks there. Can you take us through that story? Yep. So this was uh, just a few weeks ago, um, kind of happened out of the blue. So I got a call from a family friend, a friend of my parents, who's a doctor. And he had a, this is a, it's a network attached storage device. Um, so he was using this to store, for instance, some of his family photos. Um, and it was, since it's network attached, it was connected to the internet and it happened to have gotten hit by a ransomware campaign. Um, so they locked up all of his files and were demanding at the time about $500 worth of Bitcoin in order to unlock, um, get access back to his kids' photos, um, all of that. He called me knowing that I've done work in cybersecurity and kind of my first response, which um, I'm sure most people in cybersecurity would agree, is that like ransomware sucks. And the unfortunate <laughs> thing is kind of if you don't have a backup, usually there's not much you can do besides um, paying the ransom, uh, which is really unfortunate, but is kind of the the current state of play and why ransomware is so effective in making criminals a lot of money. Um, so he um, did not have a backup for a lot of these files and, of course, kind of can't put a price on like your children's uh, childhood photos, all of that. Um, so right. he was going to pay the ransom uh, the next morning. Um, so he went to kind of put his kids to bed and I said, OK, I'll look into it a little more, let you know if I find anything. And uh, that led me to the payment site of the ransomware operators. And they were uh, requesting Bitcoin in order to um, kind of yeah fulfill the payment. And they wanted you to put the transaction ID that um, you paid to kind of show that you had made the payment. So the first thing that I noticed was that they were using a Bitcoin address for multiple people. Um, so the Bitcoin address they gave him was in use by others as well. So I, the first thing I tried was just a transaction ID that had already been used um, since they had a box where you would submit the transaction ID, maybe thinking that they had uh, just kind of messed up and would accept that multiple times. Now, that didn't work, but the next thing I tried, and this was really on a whim, I did not expect it to work, was I changed a lowercase b in the transaction ID to an uppercase b. Um, and the, the idea being here that maybe they had a case-sensitive check when they were seeing if the transaction ID had already been sent to them, um, but then the check wasn't case-sensitive when they were actually checking it against the blockchain to see if mm. the payment had been made. Um, so I did this, and to my surprise, it immediately gave back the password um, to decrypt his files. Um, so I called him, sent it to him, and he got all his files back. Wow. What, what do you suppose it, it is about you about about the way that you approach these things the the way that you think um that makes you so prolific when it comes to hunting these things down yeah i think that a lot of it really just comes down to and this is kind of the mindset in security that you need is kind of just to be persistent and try everything possible um and in this case it was Sure, kind of more of an accident, whereas just doing this on a whim didn't expect it to work, but did. Uh, but I think with a lot of um, a lot of these cases, and especially say if you're 
Um, if it's, say, a bug bounty where you're looking for flaws, you're going to try a whole lot of things, and most of those won't work because the developers have thought about that and patched it. Um, but there's going to be maybe, yeah, one out of 100, one of 1,000 cases where it does work and where you've kind of outwit the developers, found something that they didn't think about um, that leads to you finding a vulnerability. And I, I think that's kind of the exciting thing about security in that you, you just have to keep trying things and eventually something will work. And what, what's really interesting is that this kind of goes beyond just the technical side. I think that like I've, I've started shifting more towards the, the policy areas as well, um, kind of thinking about how we can do a better job at scale of addressing cybersecurity, especially with all of the recent breaches we've seen, whether it's SolarWinds, Microsoft Exchange hacks, the recent ransomware that locked down um, fuel on the East Coast. Um, across all of these, kind of thinking about how can we do a better job at scale. And I think it is really valuable to apply that same mindset where, okay, let's think through all almost like we're red teaming um, the different policy considerations. What are all of the impacts of the kind of everything we can do? Uh, what is going to be the one thing that can really make a big difference? Um, and working on applying that. Um, but I, I think it's certainly the case that kind of the policy and technical sides here are deeply intertwined and kind of mm-hmm. to be successful, you need to come from both ends. What can you share with us about your thoughts about those challenges, particularly at scale? What, what, what sort of things are you exploring there? Mm-hmm. So I think that um, certainly... As a nation, and I think that uh, President Biden's executive order does a good job of kind of setting a baseline for where we need to be going. In that, for for really too long, we haven't been thinking about cybersecurity defense itself. Uh, we've been um, kind of working under the the premise that kind of if we can get really strong offensively that kind of that'll that could deter adversaries from targeting us uh, but but the recent breaches really show that that's not the case and the number one priority I think is to shore up our cybersecurity defenses um, so whether that's uh, for instance uh, thinking about say at, at the federal side preventing kind of the next solar winds or um, some of these Microsoft Exchange hacks, uh, whatever they're, just doing a much better job of applying the basics at scale. And a lot of this isn't even that complicated. It's stuff that we know works, uh, stuff like patching, multi-factor authentication, all of this that the security community knows are effective and just really figuring out how we can actually increase adoption of that um, and make it work at scale um, is, I think, necessary first step. And then there's all these other um, interesting um, areas that come into play. For instance, supply chain security is a big one. Um, like we saw with SolarWinds, if you can get into one company that um, has massive privilege in tons of other different organizations, then um, that, that makes it a really attractive target. So thinking through how not only we can improve the security of some of these suppliers, but then further how we can better structure um, our system so that even if one of these suppliers is compromised, it doesn't lead to these um, massive um, effects. So I think these are some of the really interesting areas that we're going to need to be confronting in the next few years if we want to kind of prevent um, these waves of 
of breaches and attacks from escalating more. What's next for you? What, what, what do you have left that you want to accomplish there at Stanford and then beyond there? Where do you hope to go? Yep. So I'm uh, currently a junior at Stanford and kind of getting closer to um, the end in terms of my computer science degree. Um, So in terms of what's next, I think kind of along the lines of what we've been talking about, I think there's some really interesting work to be done in the policy realm, um, shaping uh, kind of exactly um, how our our country will confront um, security. Um, And I've certainly seen that change can be had in government that you can, if you're in the right place, you can really uh, do a lot of great things, both um, the work I've done at Defense Digital Service and I also worked at CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, for about six months uh, from uh, starting in June of 2020 working on election security. So I've, I've seen that there is a lot of potential to do good things in government, and the government really does need um, good people working on this. Um, kind of to magnify what what they're already doing. Um, so I, I'm definitely open to kind of yeah positions in government that might let me continue having um, some of these wide impacts. Um, but I also certainly think yeah private sector is key, and um, I, I'm really yeah open to anywhere where I can have a high impact on kind of improving the state of security for the country. You know, go, going back to um, what we were talking about at the outset of our conversation, when you discovered, uh, you know, an error in that uh, digital banking app, um, you know, it seems to me like throughout this, you seem to have a, a strong moral compass. You know, lots of people, when seeing that they could have transferred money, may have transferred all the money. <laughs> and you, you didn't do that, uh, and you continue to work. You know, looking for bugs and, and working for the the greater good. Um, you know, why is that an important aspect for you? Mm-hmm. Yep, I think it never really was. Um, yeah, I get asked that sometimes. I think it never really was a consideration for me. It was always kind of the obvious thing that, like, I would be doing this to help improve um, company security and hence the security of their users um, and people across the country. Um, it's, I think, Fortunate that I had the opportunity to work in these areas, like with bug bounties, where companies are finally starting to acknowledge that um, hackers' help is needed and um, valued as well. Um, so I think that, I, yeah, I was really fortunate to be able to be put into a place where I could just start working immediately on these bug bounties. But I'd say overall, and this is something that I, I think is pretty universal among hackers, um, there's maybe the 0.01% of people who do this criminally to make money um, or kind of yeah, on behalf of a, a nation state. But the vast majority of hackers are likewise motivated to improve the state of security. And especially when kind of the incentives can line up, that's why bug bounties are really great to pay them for doing this really great work. We can um, accomplish a lot. But I, I think it's kind of just in some sense, yeah, universal um, shared acknowledgement that this problem is only going to get better if kind of everyone in the space puts their head down and uh, works towards um, greater goal of, of improved security. 
Um, and I think that's kind of yeah why, um, for instance, we've seen even the government. Um, so CISA issued a directive um, to require every federal agency to establish a vulnerability disclosure program to allow um, outside hackers to uh, report vulnerabilities they find to government agencies and be legally authorized to do so. So I think that there's kind of, yeah, people are seeing now that hackers are needed to do better when it comes to security. And um, I think that at least all of the hackers I know are more than willing to help out in this. Our thanks to Jack Cable for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.